Lord, we come before you proclaiming that you are beautiful and wonderful and powerful. You are worthy of every praise we could ever give. And we recognize, Lord, that it is often um, a praise that is incomplete or bitter. It is tinged with the um, reality of living in a fallen world. And yet, um, you love us and you want them and you invite us into your presence and into relationship with you, Lord. And so we um, come before you with thankful hearts this morning for that that you chose us, that you entered into our world as a humble baby, Lord. And because of that, we um, get to live with hope. And we are in such dire need of hope, Lord, as we um, feel and see so much darkness in our world, Lord. So much violence and um, harm and hurt being done, Lord. And we um, come before you proclaiming our great need for you to bring restoration and redemption and peace, Lord. And I pray this morning as we sit together, as your gathered people, that you would form within us um, a way to be your peacemakers here on this earth, that we would participate in that work with you, Lord. I pray that you would knit our hearts together um, to be one with you, Lord, and that you would um, give us eyes to see the world, to see your people around us with grace um, and understanding and love and mercy. So God, I pray that you would create that in our hearts this morning. I pray that we would be transformed deeper into your likeness through our singing together, through our reading of scripture, through hearing your word, Lord. I want to pray especially for our families and students as they are Um, transitioning back into a new semester of school. May you be with them um, as they come off a break. I hope it was a restful break, Lord. May you sustain them as they um, go from now until the end of the semester, God. Lord, I pray for our time here together this morning. May you meet us here. May you open our eyes, Lord. Pray for Eugene as he comes and shares with us in a little bit. Uh, May you give him your words and Um, Pour your spirit out upon him, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you that you are a God who loves us. And it's in your good and holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, for our scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 3. So hear these words. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as Becca reminded us at the beginning of our service today, we have made it through the first seven days of the year. So why don't we just take a moment and turn to our neighbor and give a congratulatory, we made it. (laughs) 
and to help us appreciate, to help us appreciate the accomplishment of making it through the first week of 2024, I present to you this chart. It's a progress chart there. That's how far we've made it. Yes. We've gotten through the first week, which means that there's only 51 more to go. And that means that we have 50 weeks to do our shopping for next Christmas. 47 weeks to make something for the Thanksgiving potluck. 44 weeks to decide who we'll vote for in the presidential election. 35 until some of our kids start their first college classes. 28 weeks until our 12th, 8th, and 5th graders graduate from their schools. 15 weeks left to do our taxes. 13 weeks until Easter and five weeks left in this sermon series. These are some of the things that we know are waiting for us in 2024. But there is a lot that we don't know about 2024. Things our calendars just can't tell us. We know Christmas is 50 weeks away, but we don't know what Christmas will look like in 2024. Who will be there with us? Who won't? We know when Thanksgiving is, but we don't know what the topic of conversation will be around the table. Maybe we're already dreading it, though. We certainly don't know who will win the presidential election, and we don't know how we will feel about whomever does. We don't know how we'll feel when we say goodbye to our children turned young adults, what it will be like seeing them graduating from one stage of life to the next. We don't know how we'll be doing financially when our taxes are due, or any other time of the year, to, to be frank. <laughs> and these are just some of the unknowns that fill a typical year in our lives. What about the unknowns that have followed us in from 2023? We don't know when the fighting will stop in Ukraine, or Israel, or Gaza, the West Bank, Syria, Sudan, Colombia, Mexico, Haiti, Nigeria, Yemen or Ethiopia. And with five mass shootings to open up 2024, we don't know when the gun violence epidemic in America will end. We don't know when the dysfunction in our politics will end. And we don't even know when groceries will become affordable again. Who will we say hello to and goodbye to this year? What will our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, our friend groups, even our church, PBCC, what will we look like this year? Where are we headed with our lives in 2024? For everything we know about 2024, there are so many things we don't. And perhaps naming some of the things we don't know is enough to make us feel uncomfortable and even a bit anxious. I'll admit that when a member of our staff greeted me this week, Happy New Year, I reflexively replied, is it? <laughs> I know it's new. I know it's a year. Brothers and sisters, before I head into the rest of 2024, I need to take inventory of what I do know amid all of this not knowing. And maybe you do too. Because there are things we do know, things that are good and true and worthy of planting our feet in. Some of these, th these things have been recognized by our community as touchstones of faith. We call them our PBCC family values. Some of you know these by heart, 
But for some of us, this is our first time hearing them. Whatever the case may be, the pastors and elders agreed that now, at the start of 2024, this would be a good time for us to revisit them and replant ourselves in them. Our family values are simply stated, devotion to the word, life in the spirit through grace, discipleship through relationships, participation in God's work. These values can be seen throughout scripture and the history of the church, manifesting among God's people in many different ways, but always pointing to one overarching mission, which we recognize as our own, knowing Jesus and making him known. I would like to lead us in reflecting on these values over the next few weeks. And my hope is that in doing so, we will all find our footing in what we know to be true as we face yet another year of the unknown. And so to that end, would you join me in another word of prayer for this sermon and for the rest of the series? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you know all things, but we do not. Yet by your grace, we may know enough to take at least one more step on the path you have laid out for us through the rest of this year and in the years to come until you come back to bring us the rest of the way. So God, we ask you to show us your way and to bless our reflections on the values you've led us to uphold in the past and to take up again in the present as we head into the unknown future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The PBCC values and mission and the mission they serve arise from scripture. But which parts of scripture? Well, there are too many to name. In the past, we've drawn from parts of the Bible like the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians to explain our family values. But for this series, I'd like to center our imaginations on the picture of the early church presented in the second chapter of the book of Acts. I believe we can see each of our family values in this picture, beginning with our mission of knowing Jesus and making him known. The book of Acts was written by Luke, who also authored the third gospel of the New Testament. We spent some time in that during our Advent series. Acts begins just before Jesus' ascension, sometime, before the, uh, sometime during the 40-day period he spent with his disciples after his resurrection. For nearly six weeks, Jesus appeared to hundreds of his disciples, walking among them, eating with them, encouraging them, and answering their questions. And the question at the top of the disciples' minds was, what's next? What's coming? Was it time for Jesus to finish fulfilling God's promises? Was it finally time for Jesus to raise that army, liberate God's people, and establish his eternal kingdom? Well, they asked, and Jesus replied, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To the disciples' surprise, it was not yet time for the consummation of God's eternal kingdom. Instead, God was doing something completely unexpected. He was inserting a new season of ministry between Jesus' earthly ministry and his future return. 
The purpose of this season of ministry would be to bear witness to who Jesus is and what Jesus had done so that people all over the world would be prepared for Jesus' return. Jesus' disciples were now his apostles, his sent ones, commissioned to proclaim the gospel. Now, to do this, the apostles would need empowerment from God. If you know anything about the apostles, you know they needed empowerment from God. (laughs) Jesus promised they would receive this power when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in the coming days. And with that, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the highest seat of honor and authority in all heaven. And so at the beginning of Acts 2, we find the 12 apostles and other followers of Jesus, a a group totaling about 120, we find them in Jerusalem awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And on the 50th day after Jesus rose from the dead, during the Jewish holiday of the Feast of Weeks, it finally happened just as Jesus had promised. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Fire is an emblem for God's presence among his people. Remember the fire that burned but did not consume the bush? But this was not a flame flickering in the wilderness for only Moses to see. This time, the one flame split into tongues of fire that came to rest on each of the believers gathered in the house that day. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they received the power they needed to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Fittingly, the first manifestation of this empowerment was an explosion of multilingual capacity. All of them began to speak in other tongues, in other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Over a hundred people suddenly declaring the gospel in as many different languages created cried of ruckus, as you can imagine. And Luke tells us it did not go unnoticed. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is the first of two questions that are critical to our passage and what I believe God wants us to think about this morning. The people asked, what does this mean? They couldn't explain the phenomenon they were witnessing. They wanted to understand what was happening, but they also wanted to fully understand what was being said to them. What does this mean is a question of comprehension. It is a question of intellectual understanding. It's what we ask when we need an explanation because there's something we don't know. What does this mean is the question of the head, and the apostles were ready and willing to answer. 
Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice. So me getting loud is not an uncommon thing, right? Raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Peter's audience would have recognized this prophecy as one of the many ancient oracles promising a future restoration of God's relationship with his people and with any who called on him in faith. The prophet Joel had envisioned a future in which all kinds of people would be filled with God's presence through the Holy Spirit like cups overflowing with living water. And Joel envisioned the Holy Spirit empowering them, both men and women, to speak the truth with supernatural power. Peter explained to the people gathered that day that what they were hearing was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. But the Jews had been waiting on that prophecy for literally hundreds of years. What had happened to cause its fulfillment now? Well, Peter answered this question too. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What had happened to bring about the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Jesus happened. Jesus lived a perfect life and he spoke the truth of God and he backed up what he said with acts of love and divine power. And God allowed him to die by crucifixion so that his innocent death might take the place of our deserved condemnation and pay for the forgiveness of our sins. God proved Jesus' innocence when he raised Jesus from the dead. And for his willing self-sacrifice, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. And from there, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, the living presence of God, to bring people back into relationship with God and to empower them to be his witnesses to the world. What had happened? Jesus. Jesus happened and Joel's prophecy was fulfilled. Peter's answer to their first question prompted a second question from the people gathered before him. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In the original Greek, the main verb of the phrase, they were cut to the heart, means to stab or to gouge. Metaphorically, it can mean to be bewildered or stunned. The idea is that you've been impaled by a realization so devastating to your worldview that you are paralyzed. You cannot ignore what you've just experienced. 
You feel at the core of your being a need to respond somehow. The way this verb is used is similar to how millennial and Gen Z Christians will sometimes say they were wrecked by God. To get wrecked by God is to be so overwhelmed by his truth and presence that we are left utterly speechless and wonderfully devastated. To get wrecked by God is to be so pierced by his reality that we cannot help but surrender our whole lives to him for rearrangement by his Holy Spirit. This is what happened to the people on Pentecost. What they heard from Peter penetrated through their intellect to the very center of their being, to the seat of their emotions, will, and desires, and they could not help but ask the question, what shall we do? If the first question, what does this mean, is a question of the head, the question, what shall we do, is a question of the heart. Intellectually understanding the meaning of what they were witnessing caused them to emotionally engage with the truth of the gospel. What shall we do knowing all this? Now that we understand, how do we bring our whole selves to the truth, into relationship with God? Well, Peter had an answer for this as well. He replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What shall we do, the people have asked. Peter replied, receive. Stop what you're doing and receive. Receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ and receive a new relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Receive what has been offered to you by the God who promised long ago that you and all whom he would call would one day know him. The people heard and they felt and they responded head and heart to the gospel Peter presented to them. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Brothers and sisters, this is the story of how the church was born. The church was born among people who asked two questions. What does this mean and what shall we do? The church was born when people came to know God, not only with their heads, but also with their hearts. In knowing God with their whole selves, the people gathered that day became the church, receiving a new relationship with and empowerment from God through the Holy Spirit. And perhaps, we can hear in this story echoes of our own. Perhaps the second chapter of Acts stirs in us memories of how we became believers, of when the gospel first started making sense to us, of when we were first convinced that what we are hearing from a preacher or reading from a friend or reflecting on a lone Bible open before us, that this was worthy of agreement. And perhaps you can remember when the truth in our heads made its way into our hearts, when we first felt pierced by it until we bled love for Jesus and love for others. 
Perhaps right now in this moment as I'm speaking, we are remembering what it was like to be so wrecked by God, captured by his beauty, gripped by his glory, stunned, silent, and sweetly devastated. This is what we mean when we talk about knowing Jesus, brothers and sisters. We mean a knowledge of God that asks both questions. Not only what does this mean, but also what shall we do to be in his love, in his grace, in his presence, in all that he is, with all that we are. We mean a knowledge that not only involves the head, but also engages our beating hearts. We mean that kind of knowledge that not only corrects our wrong ideas, but also deepens our connection with the God who lives within us. This is what we mean by knowing Jesus, or at least what we ought to mean. Is it? I ask this humbly, but with great concern because it is so easy to get this wrong. Many would argue that much of the church in America has gotten this wrong for a long, long time. Somewhere along the way, both members and leaders of the church decided that knowing Jesus could not include both knowledge of the head and knowledge of the heart. It was decided that the head and the heart were incompatible, immiscible, like oil and water. And for many who fell into this false dichotomy, the head came out on top as the primary way to engage God. After all, didn't the prophet Jeremiah say the heart is deceitful above all things? And doesn't chasing emotional experiences with God inevitably leave us burned out and jaded? And so we take what seems like the safer path. We equate knowing Jesus with knowing facts about Jesus, who he was and is and what he did and is doing and will do. And relating to Jesus amounts to rehearsing those facts with increasing consistency and accuracy. We define faith as agreeing with those facts and being willing to defend them with reason, force, or legislation. And community becomes less about relational intimacy and more about maintaining theological conformity. Teacher and author Judith Haugen puts it well in her book, Transformed into Fire, the faith most of us have been handed is almost entirely cognitive, a relationship based on the ideas that we form about God and the ideas that we direct toward him. We have come to define belief as only intellectual decision and dis assent. Love, mercy, grace, sanctification, all are abstractions rather than living daily realities, experiences that inflame the soul. This approach stays at the question, what does this mean? And staying there yields some immediate, more or less, benefits. Not only does it seem safer than following our hearts, but there is a righteous and holy thrill to learning something new about God or about the Bible. There is. There is something enlivening about discovering a new angle of interpretation for a difficult passage. And it isn't just fun and games either. We need to understand truths about God. We need to understand the text of the Bible. We need to understand the ideas that shape our religious expression without understanding these things cognitively and intellectually. We cannot engage with or even acknowledge God at all. 
We will have no language for it. We'll have no capacity. If I don't have some understanding of the facts about my wife, how could I hope to relate to her? If I think she was actually born and raised in Nebraska, that her parents were atheists and raised her as one, that she works in tech as a software engineer, or that her name is Samantha Jane, how could I have any relationship with her at all? How could I make sense of any of our experiences together? How could I love her? But once I've come to understand the truth about her, that she spent her childhood in Asia, that her parents were devoted followers of Christ and took her with them on the mission field, that she is actually PBCC's women's pastor, and that her name is Hedin. Once I've learned the truth about who she is, I can begin engaging with her relationally and make sense of our experiences together. Now we can have continuity between our encounters because I know things about her with my head. But here's the problem. Knowing facts about heading may be necessary to having a relationship with her, but they are not in themselves the relationship. They open the door to intimacy, they are admired and they are celebrated in intimacy, but they cannot replace intimacy, which is at the heart of truly knowing someone. And so it is with God. The late J.I. Packer observed, if the decisive factor was notional correctness, then obviously the most learned biblical scholars would know God better than anyone else but it is not. You can have all the right notions in your head without ever tasting in your heart the realities to which they refer. Brothers and sisters, we need more than head knowledge of God. We need correct ideas and we need true facts to be communicated to us and processed by our intellect, but we also need to experience heartfelt communion with God. The heart may be deceitful, but that doesn't mean the mind isn't. The heart may be stricken with sin, but that doesn't mean the mind is sufficient on its own to experience the fullness of life Jesus declared he had come to give us. Our hearts may be broken, but God still wants to be loved by them. God still wants to be loved by your broken, sinful, deceitful heart. Do you understand that? He still wants to be loved by your heart, along with your soul and your mind and your strength. He wants to be loved by all of who you are. To be clear, I'm I'm not advocating for us to throw ourselves into the endless cycle of emotional idolatry, chasing dopamine highs and coping with the ensuing crashes, thinking that our addiction is holy because it happens at church. Such a relationship with God is not much of a relationship at all. Like a human relationship based solely on sex, ecstatic experiences of God can actually prevent us from becoming more intimate with him if we cannot see through the experience itself to the person with whom we are sharing the experience. And that is what God wants with his people. The sharing of experience that we call communion. 
God wants communion with us, where he is present to us through the Holy Spirit, and we are fully, wholly, holistically present and available to him to thrill us and to excite us or to quiet us in his love, and even at times to disappoint us and frustrate us and bewilder us, because all of those things bring us closer together, closer to each other. Again, Judith Haugen. Communication is information received by the head. It focuses on tasks and delivers needed data. Communion, on the other hand, is information received by the heart. Its purpose is not solely to deliver data, but to touch us in a deep, personal way. Communion focuses on fostering relationships. Haugen warns us of what happens when we don't engage our hearts in our relationship with God. Instead of a love story, a life of mere communication is a frustrating, business-like arrangement. And some of you know what she means by this. It breeds legalism and strict codes that squeeze the life out of our union with Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you sense this in your own relationship with God? Do you find your relationship with God educational, but only that? Do you find it fascinating and interesting and stimulating even, but not engaging the rest of who you are? Have you noticed a frustration, a legalism, or or a rigid religiosity growing in you and controlling you? And do you feel the Holy Spirit beckoning you into deeper communion with him, into a richer heart-to-heart connection with him? Do you know the face of the Father looking on you with love, the warmth of his hand curling around yours? the fragrance of his breath mingling with your own, the nearness of his heart beating in sync with yours? Do you feel that bittersweet wound of repentance that binds lovers more tightly together and proves the unconditionality of their love for one another? The Holy Spirit does beckon us, brothers and sisters. Already, even now, he dwells within us. And he delights to do so. He delights to dwell in you. He delights to be in your heart with you. In this moment, right now, he smiles on you. He desires to live within us and he desires to live in others as well. Our mission of knowing Jesus is incomplete without the corollary of making him known. Remember Jesus' commission to his apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our calling is no different, brothers and sisters. We are Christ's witnesses to this world, starting here in Cupertino and reaching out as God enables us to the end of the earth. But with what are we reaching the world around us? Is it a knowledge of God that focuses on intellectual assent to the propositional truths of the gospel? Or does it go beyond head knowledge to heart knowledge as well? Head knowledge is communicated primarily via teaching, explaining, educating. It engages us cognitively and can be transmitted over great distances without us even leaving our homes these days. But heart knowledge is gained only by direct experience. 
It requires a close encounter. Only by actually experiencing love does the heart learn love. Only by actually experiencing forgiveness does the heart learn mercy. Only by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good does the heart learn of his glory and grace. We believe that our beloved lives in us, and we believe that he desires to live in others as well. But brothers and sisters, how can they believe this? How can they believe this if we don't live among them? If we don't open ourselves to be with them, if we aren't with the hurting, how can the heart, their hearts learn that God is present in their hurt? If we aren't with the grieving, how can their hearts learn that God understands their grief? If we aren't burdened with the burdened, inconvenienced by the struggling, patient with the selfish, understanding of their unkindness, if we cannot accept them as we have been accepted by the Holy Spirit living in us, how will the world believe God wants to live among them? Brothers and sisters, how are we bringing the experience of God into the lives of those around us? How are we leading others into an experience of his glory and goodness and grace? How are we sharing the gospel with them with both our words and our actions? We cannot lead anyone anywhere we haven't been. So again, we have to ask ourselves at bottom, are we experiencing God in our hearts? Paul prayed for the church that we might. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled in all to, all, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let us pray, too, that we may be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to know God with our whole beings and so become Christ's witnesses to this world. Brothers and sisters, I don't know much about what our lives will be like in 2024. I don't know much about how things will go or what will happen or how we'll respond. I don't. But I do know this. Knowing Jesus and making him known is the only thing that matters. No other goal, no other purpose, no other mission matters at all. It doesn't make any sense to pursue anything else, not to our heads and not to our hearts. So, will you join me in starting this year with our feet planted in this mission? Let's allow this mission of knowing Jesus and making him known to define who we are as a church. But receive now this benediction. As you go from this place, May God truly make the new year happy for you. As you, being rooted and established in love, are given power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. May God make this year happy with the knowledge of this love that surpasses understanding. 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God bless you and be well.